and uh, we're so glad you're here. Big welcome to everybody online. Uh, we appreciate you guys being a part uh, of what we're doing here. So if you guys want to turn to Titus, uh, you can find it on your phones. I'll, there'll be scriptures up uh, as well. We're not going to read all of the verses. There's 16 of them, uh, but we're going to read them. We're going to read them in each point. We're just not going to read them all together. Uh, so how many of you know anything about the book of Titus? Yeah, that's what I thought. It's sort of a, it's a, it's, it's listed as one of the pastoral epistles. Again, it was probably written while Paul was in uh, Corinth. Uh, there's a good possibility that he went to, uh, that he wrote this book while he was in Corinth and he wrote it to Titus, who would ultimately read it to the, the church. Um, and so here's where this, just to give you a little background about the setting. So Titus was in the island of Crete. I got a couple of maps to sort of, sort of show you. So this is the actual island of Crete and what it looks like during uh, Paul's time. You can read of Paul's travel uh, at the end of the book of Acts as he's making his way to Rome. And you can find where Paul sailed by Crete, stopped at Fair Havens. He talked about Phoenix. Um, and so there's a good possibility that while Paul was on his way to Rome um, to ultimately meet Caesar and to be in prison, that he preached the gospel here on the island of Crete. Now, as you can tell, the island of Crete is just that. It's an island. It was a massive seaport destination, right? As you can tell, Crete was by all accounts, littered with lots and lots of cities and towns. And because of its unique geography, it was a place, as you can see, where lots of ships would port and could stop. The gospel was taught here by Paul, preached here by Paul, and churches began to pop up in these towns and cities in the island of Crete. Here's a picture of Crete within the confines of a bigger map. Here's Jerusalem, right? This is where it all started, right? Over here is Italy, and Crete is right down here below Corinth, just to give you a picture of where it's at. It is to that island that Paul left Titus to do the work that he describes here in this letter, and ultimately that we're going to study as we go through these three chapters. And so there's, it's an interesting book because Crete was a unique place, right? If you do any research on Crete, especially uh, during this time, what you'll learn about Crete is, one, uh, there's a lot of conversation that Zeus, the god of thunder, was born on the island of Crete. And they took a lot of, they took a lot of pride in that, right? That Zeus was from that place. Crete was also, because of its affinity for the worship of foreign gods and because of its location, it was a very corrupt city. Let me just read you some of the things that I found about Crete during Paul's time. Um, Paul Polybius wrote this. He said, it's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in the island of Crete. Cicero said this, moral principles are so divergent and vague that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable, right? Honorable. It was a very vile place, um, incredibly um, evil 
sinful environment that the island of Crete produced. And it's to that environment that Paul preaches the gospel, plants churches, and then leaves Titus behind to finish the work that Paul wasn't able to finish because of his necessity to head to Rome. And so Paul writes this letter to give Titus some instruction on what he is to do while he's on the island of Crete trying to finish Paul's work and setting up these churches. There's not a ton of doctrine in this letter, but there is a ton of practical uh, teaching that we can glean from what Paul asked uh, Titus to do here. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into chapter one and we're going to talk about just that kind of thing, right? And, you, and again, I remind you online, I remind you in here, Bible, Uversion Bible app, you can always bring up the notes, the Uversion Bible app. You just have to log on, go to more, find live event, and you can, you can bring it up in there. Okay? So, I'm just gonna take, I just took the passage, and I'm just gonna take three basic lessons, or three basic principles out of this chapter that I wanna share with you. And here's the first one. The first one is this, that preaching God's word equates with increasing faith, knowledge of truth, and eternal life. Anybody want to say amen to that? Right? Listen to what Paul says in Titus 1, 1 through, I think, 1 through 4, 1 through 5. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness of faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son, and our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Here's what Paul says. Paul says that God has blessed him in this season to be able to reveal all of those things, faith and the knowledge of truth and eternal life through the preaching of God's word. I love God's word. I love preaching it. I love teaching it. I love most everything about it. Some, some, of, some of it is maddening and frustrating to hear. And some of it is incredibly difficult to teach when you have to first apply it to your life. But we're living in a world, listen, you don't, you don't have to take my word for it. You can do your own research. But man, we're living in a world today where within the church, right, the preaching of God's word is beginning to wane in its desire to be integrous to what this book says. It's losing its desire to be truthful, right? Listen to a couple of scriptures. Let's start with this one. First John 5, right? First John 5, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. He goes on to say, for there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and those three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony, John says, is greater because it's the testimony of God which he's given to us about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. And anyone who does not believe 
God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony of God he's given about his son. This is the testimony about his son. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life and he who does not have the son of God does not have life. Everybody online and everybody in here. How many of you have believed in the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself? Can I hear you say amen? Here's what he says. That belief in that person, the Son of God, gives you eternal life. Right? That's it. Eternal life is promised and given only through belief in the testimony of the man named Jesus. Amen? That... That is ultimately what's always at stake with false teachers. We've talked about it a few weeks ago. The spirit of the Antichrist is to deny the authority, right? To, to deny um, the deity of Jesus. To deny his incarnation. To deny the reality of Jesus is at the heart of what the Antichrist believes. It is becoming... The issue at the core of a lot of false teaching within our church today. And that's this. If you believe in the Son, the testimony that God gave us about Him, you have eternal life. Here's how you know that. You know that through the preaching of God's Word. Amen? That's how we become aware of those things. The preaching of God's word is paramount to you or I or anybody you know coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Right? I don't lead a soul to Christ. You don't lead a soul to Christ. But we can help win someone to Jesus. But ultimately, God has to draw that person in through conviction. And the conviction comes from hearing the word of God. It matters more than you or I could ever know. Listen, I love this church. I've loved every church I've been a part of. I can't look, I can't go back and look at a church that God's allowed me to be part of and not love that church. I've loved every church God has allowed me to be a part of. But what I love most is the Word of God. Because without God's word, there is no testimony of Jesus and there is no hope of eternal life. And without Jesus, there is no body to follow him. Amen. That's the testimony. Preaching of God's word is equated with eternal life. Listen to Romans 10. Skip that Galatians real quick here, David, and go down to Romans 10. He says, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Everybody read this one with me. Everybody online, everybody in here, read this with me. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Listen, not only do we receive eternal life, but Paul says, faith also comes by hearing. Listen, if you want to grow in your faith, at some point, you're going to have to introduce God's word into your life. Listen, you come to church and love Jesus. You can come to church and love worship. You can come to church and serve Jesus. Okay? But if you want to grow in your faith, if you want your faith to to grow, to allow you to be more persuaded in God yes, today than you were yesterday and more tomorrow than you are today, 
God's word has to be a part of it. I don't have to preach it. And Joe didn't have to preach it. And Shane didn't have to preach it. Or Ben didn't have to preach it. But God's word has to become a part of your life for your faith to grow. Because here's the thing. We already know that God's going to test your faith. Amen? And here's what he's going to find if God's word isn't creating that faith in you. You're going to quit passing the test that God gives you for your faith. Or you're going to be stuck taking the same test over and over and over and over and over again. Right? Listen, not only do we find God's word through his testimony. By the way, bless you. Right? Uh, not only do we find God's eternal life through God's testimony and his, the preaching of God's word, we find faith in that as well, right? Our faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. I don't care how you get it. I don't care how you study it. I, I don't care what mechanism it comes by. I do care, however, who you listen to, right? And we'll get to that at the end. But preaching of the word is equated with eternal life and with faith. Listen to these verses. Galatians chapter five, go back and grab that one. If you don't mind, David in Galatians five, one of my favorite, two of my favorite all time verses is Galatians five, one and two, right? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And here's what we're free from. We're not free from loving each other the way Jesus loved us. Can somebody say amen? What we're free from is the law of sin equals death. That's what we're free from, right? We've been set free from this terrible equation that says, if you don't meet God's standard, you spend eternity separated from me. We've been freed from that, right? He says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, right? There is a there's a way to accept Jesus and yet still live in bondage to a teaching that says in Jesus, you're not free. And some of you went to those churches. Some of you've heard about those churches. Yes, Jesus saved you, but you've got to do A, B, C, and D to keep yourself in good standing with God or you could lose your salvation. Some of you go to a church that doesn't teach that and you still believe it. Right? Some of you still struggle with the notion that, oh, I don't know. I didn't do very well last week. I don't know if I'm okay. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourself be brought into that yoke of slavery. The slavery of what? That if I sin, I'm in trouble. Right? I mean, listen, maybe this is just me. And maybe it's because I went to St. Louis Christian College, or maybe it's because I was raised in, or went to church at the Church of Christ. But how many of you have ever had something bad, to, bad happen to you, and one of the first things that you thought was, God's probably punishing me? Or what did I do wrong that God is disciplining me? Sometimes the tire just goes flat, right? Sometimes you just get sick. Sometimes boyfriends or girlfriends dump you. It isn't always connected to, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong, right? What have I done wrong, right? We've been freed from that. Look what he says. Mark my words. I, Paul, te now this is easily the most upset that Paul ever is in his writing is in the book, of, in the letter that he writes to the Galatian churches, okay? Mark my words, he says, I, Paul, tell you, listen to this, that if you let yourselves be circumcised because Jews were telling Gentiles that if you want to be saved, you can't just have Jesus. You also have to be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law. 
You can't be free from performance-based approval just because you know Jesus. And so the Jewish leaders were insistent that these Gentile believers also get circumcised and honor the Jewish law. This is what he says. I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, if you let yourselves buy into a teaching that says salvation is earned through something besides Jesus, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Listen, there's lots of Christians today who've accepted Jesus and they've made him of no value to themselves because they've also implemented a religious system that says, if I don't do A, B, and C, I'm not a Christian. And some of you haven't just lived by it. Some of you have perpetrated it by teaching your kids that and teaching your friends that. Listen, if you let yourselves be convinced that making things right with God requires anything other than Jesus, Jesus is of no value to you at all. He goes on to say this. Again, I think this is, I think this is the most powerful thing that Paul ever says. He says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that now he's obligated to obey the what? Whole law. Listen, here's the problem with trying to be good enough to get to heaven. You got to be perfect. And here's the thing, that test started before you recognized that you weren't perfect. So you already flunked the test. Why even attempt to pass it now? It's pointless, right? I've done this, I mean, I've said this a hundred times, right? How many of you've all, how many of you've known the right thing to do and have always done it right? Anybody? How many of you have known the wrong thing to do and have never done that. You're in trouble, right? Here's the thing. If you've got, if you've got a religious system that has been either taught to you or you believe that requires your performance for God's approval, you've made Jesus of no value to yourself. And now you've obligated yourself to obey every law, every time and every situation with no justifiable excuse. Anybody willing to take that bet on their goodness? No. So why let Satan convince you that that's the way God operates with you when you have Jesus as your savior. It's a lie. And every time your brain wants to tell you that, you need to call it out as a lie because it's not true. Listen to what Paul says in verse four. This one right here, this is the verse. Listen to what he says. You who are trying to be justified, trying to make yourselves right with God by obeying laws. Listen to this. By justified law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from. It is by grace you have been. And if you've tried to do it some other way, you have fallen away from grace. You've fallen away from the only thing that can save you. Listen, the preaching of God's word is absolutely in scripture equated to eternal life. It's equated with or equivalent to growing in our faith. And it's absolutely connected to the knowledge of truth. Listen to what John 8 says to wrap this point up. 
John 8 says, Jesus speaking to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the what? Truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus' teaching is equated with truth, and knowing that truth will set you what? Free. He goes on to say this. He said, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now I am here. I've not come on my own, but God sent me. I mean, listen, if you read this in context, it's hilarious because Jesus is just sending the Jews over the edge with being angry and crazy, right? He says to the Jews who claim that they're God's children, why is my language not clear to you? Because you're not, because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, he says, the devil, not Abraham is our father, right? And God is our father. You belong to the devil and you want to carry out his desires. He's a murderer, has been from the beginning, right? And not holding to the truth because in Satan, listen to this, in Satan there is what? There's no truth. There's no truth in him. And then he goes on to say, when he lies, he speaks his native language for he's a liar and he is the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, Jesus says, you do not believe me. Listen, the preaching of God's word is always equated with eternal life. It's equated with growing your faith and it's equated with the knowledge of the truth. If you want to be equipped to know the truth and be set free, God's word has to be a part of your life. It's got to be in there. And listen, I can tell you this. Most of us aren't equipped to feed ourselves. Listen, I, I've spent my entire life studying the Bible. And yet, I don't... Listen, <laughs> if it was up to me, I'd eat Twinkies 24-7, right? I can't be trusted to feed myself, okay? It's the same thing with God's Word. I listen to other pastors all the time. Because if I was the only person feeding myself, I'd only feed myself what I want to hear. Right? Listen, God's word has to be a part of your life. And that's exactly what Paul told Titus. There's power in the preaching of God's words. Here's the second thing. Lesson from this chapter. Appointing pastors, elders, shepherds is equated with the finished and orderly work of a church. Here's what Paul says to Titus. The reason, Paul says, I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out, right? This Greek word straighten out in the Greek is a medical term. It's used for setting a bone, a broken bone, right? He says, I left you that you would set up, right? Straighten out what was left unfinished or what was lacking or destitute, right? And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And now he lists Qualifications for elders. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what's good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and discipline. Now listen, I'm not going to get into qualifications of an elder through all of this with you, right? At this point in time, because I'm not sure that that really benefits all of you in regard to that. But I will say this, what Paul told Titus was this, 
A church that's unfinished and a church that's not set in order is a church without proper godly leadership. Now, the word elder, the word shepherd, the word overseer, the word bishop, it's all the same thing. It's all interchangeable, right? Let me read to you a, a passage in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. To the elders, presbyteros, right? Presbytery, right? To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, Peter says. A witness of Christ's suffering and one who one also, one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds. Elders be what? Shepherds, right? Different Greek word used in the same context of elders. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, serving as a overseer. Another Greek word, all three used in the same passage to describe one office, elder, right? Being, serving as an overseer, not because you must, he says, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Jesus, the chief shepherd, appears, you'll receive the clown of crown of glory that will never fade away. That's one of two passages in scripture where all three words are used to describe the same office. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is visiting with the leaders in Ephesus. He's getting ready to leave them. And in verse 17, it says from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders, the presbyteros, right? The presbytery of the church. Go down to verse 25. He says, now that I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again, right? Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. He didn't say that he preached the gospel to every human being. He was innocent of the blood because he had proclaimed the entire will of God to those people in that community, right? He goes on to say, listen to this, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you a what? Overseer, same context and conversation as the word elder is used. Be what? The other word, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Listen, elder, shepherd, pastor, it's all the same thing, right? It's spiritual leadership in the church. And here's what Paul tells Titus, a church without proper godly leadership, oversight, right? Overseer, shepherd, pastor is a church that's unfinished and not in order. Listen, I've been here 12 years. I don't know how many men have passed through our eldership and pastoralship and overseers in this church, but we are a blessed church to have such faithful shepherds and overseers and pastors within this flock. Does anybody agree with me? Right. And listen, not all of them are on payroll and not all of them are, are quote unquote called elders. There are lots of people who provide godly leadership as shepherds, overseers, pastors of this flock. Here's why this is necessary. Go back to that Acts 20 passage there in verse 29, David. 
Paul says to the elder, the shepherd, right? The overseer, the pastor. I know, Paul says, that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare who? Listen, false teachers aren't after me. They're after you. Right? They're not trying to compete with another shepherd. They're trying to devour the flock. And the one thing that I know in a church this size and people online and with the technology we have today, there are savage wolves ready at your fingertips. They're on YouTube, right? They're on any type of social media, right? You just have to make yourself available to them. Part of our responsibility as pastors, shepherds, overseers, right, is to rebuke and refute that false teaching. Because why? Savage wolves who will not spare this church. Listen, there are false teachers that want to see this church destroyed. Some of you know this. Some of you read this on social media. Some of you were angry about it. But we had a local church in our community that some of the children of this church go to that school. And a pastor stood up before some of our children and said, Tomoka does not teach you about God, but we do. Right? That was, that was, that was a disappointing thing to hear. Right? One of the things that I'm reminded about daily on this staff is that we are in a spiritual fight. I mean, an intensely, an intensely contested spiritual fight. And false teachers have one desire, to destroy the flock. Listen, I can assure you that God's testimony and God's complete revelation of his will is taught at Tomoka Christian Church. All right. Listen, I'm not saying, yeah, you can clap, right? We've got some incredible teachers. Listen, I'm not saying that we get everything right. Listen, I, I've been preaching for 30 years. I've been here for 12. Listen, you want to stand up here and preach God's words and watch people do this, right? Listen, you're standing up here after preparing a sermon that cost, took you 15 hours to prepare and research, and you've done your best to get God's will, and you proclaim God's will, and somebody sitting in the church is looking at you, and they're going, right? It can be utterly discouraging at times, right? But listen, here's what Paul, here's what Scripture tells us. Our job is to rightly divide the word of truth, right? That's our job. Right? We are to preach God's word in season outside. Do we all agree about every little thing? Absolutely not. But our leadership does. We've talked about it. Right? We've studied it. We've been challenged on it. Right? And we stand behind what we teach. Because here's what I know. A church that's unfinished and not in order is a church that doesn't have godly appointed leadership. Let me make this clear to you too. Paul says to Titus, appoint leaders or elders or pastors or shepherds or overseers. All the same thing. He said, appoint them in every church and every town. Right? Appoint. He doesn't say vote. 
He doesn't say elect. When we got to the point that we thought we needed to vote on who should be our elders was a bad day in the church. Listen, I love my kids. I love them. I've got a 35-year-old and I've got a 17-year-old, which means there's an 18-year difference between them. When my oldest son was 20, 19, he lived with me. My youngest daughter at the time was two. There were times we needed to make family decisions. How much weight do you think I gave my two-year-old in what was best for the family? It's not that I didn't hear her. It's not that I didn't ask her opinion, right? It's just that when it actually came to deciding what was best for the family, a 19-year-old's vote was probably more important than a two. And yet churches across the globe insist on letting Christians who are a year old vote on the most important role that God has established in a church. Does that make any sense to you? No. Listen, elders are to be appointed, right? They're to be appointed, not voted on by popular vote. Hey man, that guy's a really good businessman and he seems to love Jesus. We need to make him an elder. Nope. That's not the qualification, right? Man, that guy runs his own business. I think we could probably trust him. Him and his family are here all the time. We should make him an elder. Nope. There are some really good godly men that have no business ever being an elder. Ever. Because they just haven't been called to that role. Right? There's thousands of other things to be doing in the church. There is a specific call. And here's why. The spiritual fight for the flock is real. Savage wolves have a desire to destroy this church. Whether that church meets online or whether that church meets in person, that's what they want to do. And we've got to be prepared for this. Let me read you another passage of scripture here. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes this. He said it it was he, right? This This was God. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, right? Some to be evangelists, and some to be... Come on, everybody say it. Pastors and some to be teachers. Why did that? Why was that God's plan? And God gave them that, right? So being an elder is a call. God gave some to be pastors. Same word that's interchangeable between overseer, elder, shepherd, pastor. God gave some to be. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service. Listen, the primary job of any pastor or teacher is to equip saints for work of ministry. The best pastors in the world aren't the people that stand up here and preach and teach and talk really well. The greatest pastors in the world are people who equip others to serve. Listen, I've said this before. I went to Bible college with Joe. The guy that you know today is not the guy I went to Bible college with. The guy I went to Bible college with was backward and shy and honest to God. The first time he preached a sermon to our homiletics class, we were sitting in a room like this and Joe stood like this and he preached to the wall for 15 minutes. Right? That guy now stands up and asks you to donate a million dollars to double the churches in Egypt from 541 to 1,082. And looks you dead in the eye and has no problem with it. Right? God gave some people to do that. Why? Because people were designed for works of service. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, say amen. Here's what God designs you to do. Good works. That's what God designs you to do. Good works. Right? And here's the thing. Any teacher or pastor worth their salt 
aren't the best at going to the hospital. They're the best at equipping others to go to the hospital. The best pastors and teachers in the world aren't the ones that do all the work of ministry. The best ones are the ones that equip Christians to do the work that God called them to do. Those are the best teachers in the world. Yes, there are great academians. There are great people that will make you feel wonderfully special about what you know about Scripture. But if a pastor or teacher has not equipped you to do the work of ministry, they have failed you. They have failed you. And people ask me all the time who went to Bible college, me and Joe, why is God using Joe putting this way? I'll tell you why. Because the best thing that Joe does is he powers and equips saints to do the work of ministry. He looks at you and goes, you're a Christian? Then what are you doing? Right? How many children are you sponsoring? Right? When was the last time you met the need of a homeless person? When did you take care of a widow or orphan in need? When was the last time you got on a mission trip? When did you serve in children's ministry? Because guess what, Christian? You were saved to serve. Right? He says this, and bring that passage back up, David, to prepare God's people for work of service. Why? Why do we need you to serve? So that the body of Christ may be built up, right? Until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The next verse says, so we won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Right? Listen, one of the greatest signs of immaturity is that one day I believe this and the next day I believe that. One day I got my hair cut this way and the next day I'm wearing this style. One day I'm dating this person and the next day I'm dating this person. A sign of maturity is we go from one thing to the other. We're tossed here and there to and fro. Listen, we have got to reach maturity in Christ as a church because the savage wolves are here to destroy us. Part of the way we do that is to make sure those who are appointed to be pastors, shepherds, elders, overseers are equipping saints for the work of ministry. We've got lots of people like that on our staff. Lots of volunteer people that do just that. We're fortunate to be a part of that. But a church that's orderly, right? That's setting things right from front to back is a church that is appointing those people to lead over you. And let's be clear. A husband of one wife suggests that an elder has to be a man. There's no debate in it. And you can go, well, that's sexist and that. No, it's not. It's biblical. It doesn't say women can't be leaders. It doesn't say women can't be in ministry. Read about Phoebe, right? Read about these wonderful women in Scripture that were leaders. But we're talking about a specific role. A shepherd, an elder, a presbyteros, right? A poimia, right? These Greek words refer to a man. And that's not sexist. That's just biblical. And so your argument, listen, when your argument is to change something because it's culturally not acceptable, you need to be careful. Because the word of God is designed to increase the knowledge of truth. And that's just part of it, church. Let me read one more scripture to you about elders. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. Obey your leaders. Submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. 
Listen, there's nothing in there that says you have to blindly lead or blindly follow blind leaders. There's all kinds of admonition of what a good godly leader should be. But when you've got a good godly leader, submit to their authority. Why? Because they're going to give an account for the way they led and shepherded you, not the other way around. You're going to give an account. My lands, did that go by fast? Right? You're not going to give an account for that, but you will give an account for your submission to that authority. Here's the last one real quick. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is equated for encouragement, rebuking, equipping, for doing good. Let me read you a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writing to another young man like Titus says, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. Why? Because these things promote controversy rather than God's work, which is by faith. Listen, here's what Paul said to Titus. Listen to Titus. Bring Titus up there in verse 9 through the end of the chapter. The elder must hold firmly to trustworthy message as it has been taught. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. Listen, I don't know about you, but I can't tell you how many times I've been encouraged by good sound doctrine preaching and teaching. Amen? Man, it's encouraging. I mean, there's so much in the Bible that can be encouraging to you. But it's got to be sound doctrine. He says, we can encourage others by sound doctrine and we can refute those who oppose it. Listen, part of the way to be set, be, be set free by truth is you got to know it. you got to know that truth, right? Sound doctrine isn't just for our encouragement. It's also for equipping us to refute teaching that's not sound. It's important because here's why. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. So there were Cretan Jews who were getting into these churches and they were going in there and teaching them what? Jesus isn't enough. You've got to be circumcised to be saved, right? Paul says they've got to be silenced. They've got to be silenced because they're ruining whole households by what? By teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Listen, sound doctrine is important. Sound doctrine is first and foremost for your encouragement. Listen, part of the benefit of being in a Bible study, sitting under teaching, right? Under preaching is so that you can be encouraged, right? Because listen, it's hard to... Listen, there are times my diet is not good. And there is nothing more discouraging than wanting to eat healthy, trying to eat healthy, and failing to eat healthy. Because then you sit on the floor amongst your 22 Twinkie wrappers, and the only person that you hate is you, right? Sometimes you need somebody to cook you a good home-cooked meal so you can be encouraged. Sometimes you need good sound doctrine to be encouraged. Amen? Right? But you also need it. Because we're living in a world where the enemy is trying to destroy the household of God. And how's he doing it? By false teaching. False teaching. And here's the thing. People used to say this all the time, right? When, when Satan went to Eve and said, what did God say? Did God really say you can't have the tree? Right? And people say, well, see, he told half truths. The Bible said of Satan... There is no truth in him. 
He never tells a half-truth. He always tells a a lie. And here's the thing. When you know God's Word, you know a lie the second you hear it. And here's what you can do. Refute that teaching. you got to refute it. Right? Paul goes on to say here, even one of, he's talking, he's talking to, uh, Titus about Crete. He said, even one of their own prophets, and you can, it's not really the word prophet in the Greek, it's the word poet, right? One of the poets wrote this about them. It was actually in a song, right? Cretans are liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Leave that there for a second. Bring that back up. Cretans are liars. The Cretans were so known for lying that they came up with a Greek word to describe Cretans as liars, right? That's how much of a liar Cretans were, right? He goes on to say this, bring that next verse back up. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in what? Their faith, sound doctrine again. Good, godly preaching produces growing faith. He says, and we'll pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. To those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Listen to this. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. He says they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. You see, here's the thing about sound doctrine. It isn't just designed for encouragement. And it isn't just designed to equip you to refute false teaching. It's designed to equip you for good work. And need I remind you again, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. So none of us can be arrogant. Somebody say amen. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in. You've been saved to serve. You want to know how to be qualified to do good work? You need sound doctrine. You need sound doctrine. Because here's the thing. Evidence of false teachers are everywhere. Listen, I don't. I don't, I don't spend my time calling out pastors, but I have no problem calling out false teachers. And I was watching, I don't even know what it was. It just came up and Benny Hinn was on, was on. And probably lots of you've heard of Benny Hinn. And if you like Benny Hinn, you're going to hate this. (laughs) Benny Hinn is a false teacher. And it, and listen, it isn't because of what he says. It's because of the evidence of his life. False teachers are evident by the lifestyle they live. That man is using the gospel for his own personal gain. The world is full of those. And their desire is to destroy this church. And along with it, to destroy you. Good preaching, godly preaching is necessary to grow your faith, right? To connect you to the knowledge of truth and to give you eternal life. Godly leaders are always equated with a healthy church that's in order and done what God's asked them to do. And sound doctrine, man, sound doctrine is needed, needed. 
right, for your encouragement, to equip you to, to refute false teachers. But ultimately, sound doctrine is designed to make you useful for every good work. Chapter 2 of Titus is my second favorite chapter in all of the Bible. So I'm looking forward to coming back and teaching that next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for, uh, I just thank you for this little letter. We talk a lot about Corinth at times when we talk about cities that were debaucherous and that they were evil. I think we have really no idea how evil the island of Crete was and how difficult it had to have been to plant churches in such a corrupt environment. And yet, somehow, in the midst of all of that darkness, the light took hold. And we're grateful for Paul and for men like Titus and for those whose names we don't know that were appointed to lead these churches. Father, we do know this church. We know the leaders of this church, and we're grateful for them. And we pray for them today, God, that you would watch over and protect them. I pray, God, for our church, that there will be men who will watch over this flock to protect it from savage wolves who would want to destroy it. And in the meantime, I pray for every, every shepherd, every pastor, every overseer. They'll be busy equipping saints for the work of ministry. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.